You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, what threatens to overwhelm you in this life? What do you feel and what do you do when the ground that you thought was safe to stand on has completely collapsed and you're under the rubble of it all? What do you do when you're supposed to feel normal, but for reasons outside of your control, you feel crazy, depressed, your emotional and mental health seems to be fighting against you? What do we do when the impacts of our sin has caused damage in our marriages and in our relationships and in our children? And along with this, our home feels like a broker of Satan's doubt rather than a place of grace, of mercy, and of hope. What do we do? Well, we may not have people telling us this, but the voices we hear reverberating in our head is the same thing that David's enemies told him. There is no help for you in God. There is no salvation for you in God. But David says, the Lord is my help. The Lord will, wound, will, will heal my wounded heart. The Lord will carry me back to the light every time. Indeed, salvation isn't found in our circumstances. Salvation is not found in our abilities in this life, but in you, O Lord. So as our spiritual enemies are against us and all around us, and temptation doesn't let us, Temptation doesn't let up. Our sin seemingly non-stop, and it's harming the people we love most. When the sin of those we love is harming us, and our foes are all around us, church. When it seems that God has abandoned us, and the voice in our head is screaming doubts about God that tell us that there is no help for us. In Where do we go for rescuing? What do we do in order to not live by our sight, by our feelings, by our experiences? How does knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord matter for the way that you and I understand suffering and the real battle this side of eternity? So along with the hope that is found in Christ in Psalm 3, my prayer this week has been that this psalm would help us to, cre- to connect this great doctrine, that salvation belongs to the Lord, to our lives in such a way that we suffer better and that we gain a better understanding of how beholding the glory of Christ by faith is our greatest weapon in this life. And so without any further introduction, I will read Psalm 3 for us. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. 
But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the holy inspired word of God. As David is penning this psalm. Uh, For our time this morning, I have two parts for our time. And part one is simply looking at the text. And looking at the text, I want to see the source of David's cry, the source of David's hope, and the source of David's peace and confidence. So I want to look at the the, uh, text today in three parts. And if you're filling out that children's bulletin, kids, that may be helpful to you. Uh, And then part two, I have two reflections and uh, a brief conclusion for us. Uh, So starting off, just to give us some context, Psalm 3 is the prayer of David. It is the prayer of all of us, the church, who bear our crosses. But most importantly, it is the prayer of the promised son of David, uh, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. But first, I want you to notice how this psalm of David, he pins this when he's fleeing from Absalom. This is one of the more intense moments in David's life. And on top of that, maybe one of the most personally hurtful. Uh, He's fleeing from Jerusalem after many years of of leading his kingdom, of ruling his kingdom in the wake of his adultery with Bathsheba, uh, after uh, killing her husband, and then the ensuing plot to cover it all up. Now the Lord has forgiven him, but there are consequences in his home and in his kingdom for his sin. And so what we see is uh, the result of his sin in his children. One of his Children commit sexual sin against his half-sister. And Absalom is upset with this, another one of David's sons. So he plots very slowly, very patiently, a couple years. And he finally, uh, in vengeance, kills Annan. But that's not enough for, for him. He is plotting now to kill David. And so he's convinced the kingdom that David doesn't care about your troubles, but I do. I'm valiant. Uh, valiant. I'm Uh, beautiful. I'm handsome. I'm a leader. I'm a king. I will save you, Absalom says. And so he's convinced the people to go after and destroy David. So uh, in the David's best friend, Nathan said, you know, on behalf of God, your sin is going to, you're going to see your, the consequences of your sin in your household. So in Annan, we see sexual sin. In Absalom, we see this vengeance murder, Uh, both (laughs) the things that David had done. Uh, nonetheless. So David is fleeing. He's fleeing because his counselor said, man, Absalom is out to kill you and he's got thousands with him. And so David flees. But here's an important thing about this exile. David's not only fleeing from his son Absalom, he's also fleeing from the presence of the Lord in one sense. The Levites try to bring the Ark of the Covenant with David to exile and he says, leave it. If I find favor with the Lord, I'll be back to see Not only the ark, but be in the presence of the Lord. So it's in this exile that David pins Psalm 3. And before we go into verse 1 and 2, let me make one more comment. That we must know 
as we consider the Psalms and as we especially consider Psalm 3 today, that the most important context, the most important purpose of this Psalm is realized in the Messiah, the king in exile on the run from those who seek to take his life. David's exile is connected in beautiful ways to Jesus and the church. And Psalm 3 is a window into understanding all of that. So let's look at the text, part one, the source of David's cry. This is verse one and verse two. Much of what I just said serves to help you understand uh, the context of why David's crying out to the Lord. But I want to make one comment or or one other point is that I think it's important to see that uh, the king is on the run. You know, perhaps David, the king, is fleeing and, and many people as he's running out of the city are telling him there's no salvation for him and God. This is God's anointed as he flees from his son. This is what it looks like for, to be saved by God. This is what it looks like to be the king. This is what it looks like to be anointed. No way. No way. He's fleeing into exile. There's no way God's going to save him. That's not what this looks like. But isn't this how God works, though? Think about the Exodus. His people in exile, in slavery, the Lord is doing mighty works, mighty works amongst them. This is the way our God works. Nonetheless, we humans judge by appearances, don't we? There's no way there's salvation for David and God. This is over for him. This is over for him. So really quick question before moving on. Based upon your circumstances, how many times do the voices that you hear in the lies of the evil one sound like this? Look at your situation. God doesn't love you. This is a result of your sin. God does not love you. There is no more forgiveness for you. This is proof that he doesn't care about you. Has your circumstances changed? Have you been fixed? Well, must mean God doesn't care about you. How many times are the voices in our head reverberating that kind of language as we live by sight? But notice where David goes with his complaints. That reveals the source of David's hope. Be easy to live according to sight, according to his experiences and his feelings as he has regret over all his sin, knowing that he's forgiven. But what he is in exile for is his own sin. Nonetheless, where does he take his complaints? This reveals the source of David's hope. Verse 3 and 4. But you, O Lord. But you, O Lord. It's not David's self-generated optimism. This is going to work out. If it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger. You know, and on and on it goes. That's not, that's not what's happening here. It's not his own might or his own strength. Saul killed thousands. David his ten thousands. That doesn't seem to matter to David right now. What does matter is the covenant God of Israel who promised that David would have a seed, an everlasting uh, descendant who would sit on an everlasting throne in an everlasting kingdom. So David's hope, I'm going to go to the God who's promised redemption. I'm going to go to the God who's always kept his promises, who's always been faithful, who has never let Israel down. And so David says, this, you, O Lord, are my shield every side, before me, behind me, above me, below me, on every side. You are my protector. You are my glory, my abundance, my honor. Not myself, but God. The best thing about David was his God. 
not the 10,000s he defeated, not his Uh, not Goliath that was defeated. It was his God. The God of Israel is what was praiseworthy about David. So he says, you are my glory. Not only that, Yahweh, you are the lifter of my head. The one who raises me from despondency. Even if I'm not taken out of exile, even if I'm not taken out of my troubles, my head is kept above the waters so that my spirit will not fail because God is my joy, the lifter of my head, my protector, the best thing about me. This is what David, this is David's hope that the Lord is his protector, the best thing about him, and the one who sustains him. But look at how David's cry is heard by God. This is going to be important as we continue on, but although David was in exile from the place that God had said that he would be with his people, the Ark of the Covenant, right, in the tabernacle, this place where we would, his glory dwelled and his presence was uh, experienced, the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him from his holy hill. We'll talk about that in a minute. But nonetheless, on the surface, the answer comes in a very, the answer of his prayer comes in a very practical way. But the fact that this is David's hope reveals the source of David's peace and his confidence, which moves us on to verse 5 through 8. The good shepherd protects and sustains David. So he takes his cries to his hope, who is the Lord God, his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head. And he says this, I lay down and I slept. When you are in trouble, is it not a gift from the Lord that you have rest? A very practical answer, but he had rest. He could have had countless nights, countless, countless nights of staying up worried about if this friend was was in on this, you know, coup to take over his kingdom. He could have worried about if this guard or if this counselor was in on this. There was a million things to worry about. Nonetheless, because the Lord is his protector, the Lord's the best thing about him and the lifter of his head. He slept. He got rest. And then verse 6, David says, I'm not going to be afraid of the many thousands of people who set themselves against me. It's a lot of confidence. It's a lot of confidence that there's thousands of people out to get me, but I'm not going to be afraid. He fearlessly looks upon his, his enemies, but how? Knowing that his life is in the Lord's hands knowing that not only is his salvation in the hands of the Lord, but his current circumstances. And so he says, let the Lord do what he thinks is good. But again, his confidence wasn't in his own ability to trust God, because that's where we like to take these things. Well, if I just trust God more, maybe I would live this way. It wasn't in his ability to trust God. It wasn't in his faith in God's plan. It was in God himself in all that God had promised. There is a difference. And so continuing on to verse 7, this confidence in God and all his promises, what does it do to David? Arise, O Lord, and save me. The confidence he has in his God leads him to a greater dependence on God. Does this make sense, folks? He doesn't say because... uh, My God is the God of Yahweh. I'm going to rise up and defeat Absalom. No. He says, Lord, save me. 
His confidence in who God is created a deeper dependence on who God is. And that's what we prayed this morning, saints, that our confidence in God would lead us to a greater dependence upon the Lord's goodness and the Lord's justice. Remember in Psalm 2, you could probably look over in your scriptures, verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, the Lord says, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Speaking of this king that he has set on the holy hill, and in verse 9 he says, that king will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Obviously, uh, in alluding to Genesis 3.15, how the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. Ultimately, this is the enemy of God's people. But the Lord will strike his enemies on the cheek and break their teeth, David cries out. Strike your enemies and break their teeth. There may be many that says that there's no salvation for, uh, in God for David. But he knows that there's no salvation in God for the wicked. They may be wise, they may be mighty, they may be handsome, and the world's rulers may demise the downfall of the righteous. But Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 let us know that salvation does not belong to them. The law and the prophets have well taught David that salvation belongs to Yahweh alone. So David knew not only that his entire salvation was in the hands of the Lord, but his current circumstances were as well. And so he's praising God's goodness in his wrath against evil. We worship the Lord for all his attributes, right? His mercy, his love, his kindness, but also his wrath and his vengeance and his justice. There is judgment for the one who walks the path of wickedness, Psalm 1. There is judgment for the one who does not kiss the son and serve him with fear and trembling and take refuge in the anointed. That's Psalm 2. And David knows that to be true. And so he rests on the Lord to deliver him both in life and in death. And so he proclaims in verse 8 that salvation belongs to the Lord. And because of this, his people are blessed. One quick excursus, how could a man like David, who's fleeing because of the consequences of his sin, ask the Lord to crush the wicked? How is he not counted among the wicked? How is he not the one whose teeth gets knocked in? Because he trusts in the promise of God. Because he's looking for that king on that holy hill who will bring justice. And so he prays, Lord, bring justice. Do what's good. The blessing of God's people from God's holy hill, from which he answers David in verse 4, that's the holy hill where God has, a set, has set his anointed king. That's Psalm 2 and verse 6. And that king is the blessed man of Psalm 1, and all who take refuge in him are blessed. And so ultimately, this is David's confidence. This ultimately is the answer David looks for when he says God answered me on his holy hill and then goes straight to the fact that God will bring justice. And so as that concludes our time going through the text, I want to just go straight into the reflection. I have two reflections leading to a conclusion, but this first reflection is really just a further explanation and, and a help to understanding, okay, what do we do with all this? This is really good. I feel like it's set up nice, but like what? 
what is it? So reflection number two, David's descent into suffering, or excuse me, reflection number one, David's descent into suffering foreshadows the ministry of Christ. David's descent into suffering foreshadows the ministry of Christ. This will, again, give us a full understanding of this psalm and how to get that full understanding of, psalm, of this psalm, we need to know how the Messiah sung this psalm. David flees his own palace in the dead of night over the river, and he went with a few of his faithful followers to hide himself from the fury of his rebellious son. Jesus Christ, too, passing over the river when his own people did not know him, and they were in rebellion against him with a ragtag, feeble band of followers. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane to cry out to his father. He too was surrounded by enemies. People always sought to kill him, although he was perfectly sinless. King Herod sought to kill him at his death, I mean at his birth. The religious leaders, many occasions, sought to out him, to put him to death, because they, like us, hated his righteousness. Jesus was in many ways a king on the run. That is scandalous. The Son of God puts on flesh, and he's a king on the run. A king who left his throne and was in exile. But he wasn't in exile because of his own sin. He was in exile for your sin, for my sin. He left his throne to fulfill all righteousness for you and for me. Jesus lived perfectly so that his obedience, so that his righteousness would be counted as your very own, so that you could say, the Lord loves me. The Lord loves me. He came to his own. His own didn't know him, but they hated him. We hated him, and he carried our cross up that holy hill. This is the holy hill of the Lord, which God has answered his people's cry for salvation. We cry for salvation, and we cry for justice. The holy hill of Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for you and for me. Not for his own sin. This holy hill, which God answers his people, is the hill of sacrifice, in part. It's the hill of that... Psalm 2 speaks of where sin is judged and God's enemies are defeated and his wrath is satisfied. Now, redemption has been accomplished. Jesus saved us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again. His merits are our very own. But there is another hill. There's another hill that we will behold the glory of Christ with our very eyes. And the problem is, to get up that holy hill, we too have to be righteous, which is why Christ was righteous for us. This is Psalm 1. This is Psalm 15. That what's, what, who, who's the person that climbs that hill and sees God? A perfect one. And in Christ, you're a perfect one. And we are pilgrims in this life. And death is not final. Death is not final for you and for me the worst thing that can happen to us, yet it is not a final thing for us. It, is, it, it really it, uh, consummates and finishes that journey where we climb that hill. And he'll hear, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. Not because we have been righteous, but because we're counted with Christ's righteousness. And we will behold the glory of God by sight forever. But going back to the holy hill of sacrifice, this is the place that Satan has his teeth kicked in. This is where the Lord saves his people. This is where you can look back and say, I am delivered from all my enemies, from the curse of the law, from the wrath of God, from all the enemies of God's people. But a few more things about Jesus' ministry. He left his throne to go to a far country full of idolatrous living, full of all sorts of immorality to redeem a people for himself. And he's mocked. The same words which David's mocked with. There's no salvation for him in God. What do the religious elites say to Jesus? Well, if he trusts in God, let, him de- let God deliver him. This is Matthew 27. They mock him. Oh, this is the Lord's anointed, hung on a tree. God the Son has put himself in our flesh, and he cries out to the Father, Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. It's the humility of our Savior for you, for me. He's the righteous man, the blessed man. He's the king who suffered the curse of exile, not for his disobedience, but for our disobedience. But also see how God, uh, David's God-given trust in the Lord's care for him points to Jesus' complete trust in the Father's care for him. We see Jesus in this faraway country with no place to lay his head, but he's secure in the heavenly Father's care for him. Remember the scene when uh, the disciples are in the boat. The waves are, I mean, they, they, they're about to, they feel like they're going to die. I mean, you know, I was in a kayak this past week, and when the boat waves come through, you, you know, the thing shakes one time, and, and you get out of control. Imagine being on a whole boat, and the, you feel like you're about to die. The thing's going to break in half, and Jesus is asleep. Because Jesus knows what the plan is. Jesus knows his father has planned redemption and that will be accomplished. And so he rests in his father's heavenly care. Just an example that I thought was cool. But ultimately, more than earthly sleep. I agree with Augustine and I agree with Martin Luther that Christ went into exile from his father's benevolent presence and he laid down in the sleep of the grave of sinners. And he was accepted in their place and he was sustained by the Lord, and he rose for their justification. And this is how God's enemies are defeated in the person and the work of Christ. So I hope that helps you see not only the hope that uh, Psalm 3 brings to us, but because of this, because of what we just considered, we can live with the eyes of faith, no longer with the eyes of sight. So stick with me here. To realize this point, it's in the person and the work of Christ. Let me make it clear. This is the second reflection. We behold the glory of Christ, and this is our rest, and this is our greatest weapon in this life. So reflection number two, because of all that we just considered, we can behold the glory of Christ by faith, and this is our greatest rest and our greatest weapon in this life. So. Notice, in the person and in the work of Christ, God has made himself your shield, your protector all around. Notice that in the person and work of Christ, 
God has made himself the best thing about you. He has made himself your glory. And in the person and work of Christ, God is the lifter of your head. Now that's true. That's true. And he did all that by choice. And as we heard read today, Jesus says, Father, I want them to behold, I'm looking forward to that day that they behold my glory by sight. But for now, we don't behold it by sight. We behold it by faith. We behold the glory of Christ, our Redeemer, who came not to condemn, but to save sinners. So what does it mean to behold the glory of Christ by faith? It is to stay right here. Christ is the Savior of sinners, of which I am the foremost. Christ saved me. He doesn't condemn me. Christ saved me. We live by faith in that creed for the rest of our days. But here's the thing. For now, as we do that, we live in a world where our sin affects us. It affects everyone around us. The difficult situations we find ourselves in, they may be from uncontrolled circumstances. Things by God's providence has, have really happened to us. Whether abuse, whether sickness, whether other types of things that we did not ask for or sign up for. But then on the other hand, maybe it's the temptations within. It's our evil desires, which we have chosen to give into, and it's our sin and the consequences of what we have done that have put us in difficult situations. But regardless, we often feel verse 2 of our psalm. Like Job, like Jeremiah, like other parts of the psalms, it feels like God is against us at times. Why won't temptation let up? I don't want this. Why did this happen? Why is God allowing this? There's no salvation for me and him. He doesn't hear me. He doesn't care about me. Because I've sinned and brought this on myself, he's distanced himself from me. He's not a near God. He deserted me because I wasn't good enough. This is the voices we hear reverberating all the time in our head when we live by sight. Because we have crosses to bear. This is what life can feel like. There's no salvation for you and God. But living that way, believing those voices, that's the definition of foolishness. It keeps us from God, and it divides us as the body of Christ. Living by sight, when we feel that we're cold, that we're sluggish, and our hearts just don't have much energy to to chase after the Lord, and therefore we don't go to God in prayer because we're living by sight. We live by sight, and we believe the lies that are in our head, that God is out to get us, and that there's no way he's going to forgive us yet again. We entertain those thoughts when we live by sight. We live by sight when we're waiting for God to change our circumstances in order to prove that he really has us. We live by sight when we trust our feelings over what God has said he's done. He has said in the person of work of Christ, I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I'm the best thing about you. I'm the lifter of your head. But we don't feel that. So we have a choice. Whose word are we going to follow? Right? the voices in our head reverberating the doubts and the lies or what God said that he is. Living by sight, by our feelings, by our experience, we slowly lose our way. And this is the tool that the evil one uses us to distract the church from the person and the work of Christ and to disunify us. But 
David says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Those are the words of faith. Those are the words of faith. Everything David's got going on is against him. He's caused it. This is his sin and the consequence of his sin, and he's stuck. But what does he say? But you are my shield. You're my protector. You are the best thing about me. You are the lifter of my head. It's beholding Christ by faith that we are transformed. Even though it feels like God is a deserting God. He's not near to us. We're in the darkness of the storm. Feels like death and hell. But the Spirit helps us by faith to acknowledge Him as a sustaining God. He will sustain. Don't care what it feels like. Don't care what it sounds like. I don't care what it looks like. He is a sustaining God. He said so. May God help us live by faith. When nature sees God as one who persecutes us and who's tempting us, faith affirms him not as a tempting God, not as a persecuting God, as a helping God. He is my help. He said so. I don't care what I feel like. I know what it looks like. I know this is the consequence of my sin. I know I'm, I'm tired of these temptations, but they stay around. But he is my help. He said so. And although our flesh sees him as a condemning God, because we're all still so legal at heart, we acknowledge him as a savior. Our God has made himself a redeemer. You best believe he's going to get you to the end. Out of nothing, he created a world in which he would die for you. He loves you. He has made himself, in Christ Jesus, your shield, the best thing about you and the lifter of your head. And so we pray now by faith that we would believe that, that we would know that no matter what it feels like right now, we will behold the glory of our Savior with our very eyes. We will put on new flesh, immortality. If that's what God said he's going to do, then by faith, let's believe he's a helping God. He's a near God. He is a sustaining God. And one way we do this, maybe the primary way we do this, is by showing up together and clinging to Christ by faith with his ordinary means of grace, where he promises that your sins are forgiven. I know you've been through hell this week. Your sins are forgiven. I know you're tired of the temptations that won't leave you alone. Your sins have been forgiven. I know that you have fought each other because of the warring desires within, but your sins are forgiven, and you don't this week have to be an adulterer against God because Christ is for you, not against you. So we live Sunday to Sunday, receiving what Christ has done for us so that we might protect one another, love one another, that we might be each other's shield, that we might be the best thing about each other, that we might be the lifter of each other's head like our, like our Savior is for us. This is our ministry in the church. So from Sunday to Sunday, it's just like hashtag hang on. Christ has got you. He's, is your, I, I, it is so hard when you leave here because your circumstances haven't changed. The temptations are still there. But 
all the more true is that Christ is for you, that you will make it to the end. And so this right here is what keeps us living a mature life. One where, yeah, we show up here Sunday to Sunday, and sometimes we feel a lot, and sometimes we don't. Nonetheless, what is preached, what is given through these ordinary means is true, and it's true for me regardless of what I feel, what I've done this week, or what I'm going to do this coming week. It's true, and that's what keeps us going. Not living by sight, not living according to our feelings and what we think, what we feel, what things look like. What has God said? And so we're just going to keep doing what God said is good. We're going to keep fleeing from what God said is bad. And although our lives are so mundane and we all feel the vanity of life and it starts to feel pointless, we're going to keep on. We're going to keep on doing the next thing doing the next thing because Christ is enough. We will see his glory. We'll be there together. So let's lock arms. Let's be each other's shield. Let's be the best thing about each other. And let's lift each other's head. We belong to one another as we are the bride of Christ. And so kind of heading uh, toward a conclusion. I'm mindful of the fact that, uh, you know, we, we've been in Romans 8 hearing about how salvation belongs to the Lord, the covenant of redemption, that he has from the foundation of the world said that I'm going to justify you, I'm going to sanctify you, I'm going to glorify you. I give him my spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance, and that spirit helps us when we're weak. We don't know what to pray. We don't know what to say. And that spirit helps us not live by sight. That spirit helps us to remember that we're in jars of clay. We've got this, this, you know, we've got this spirit that is everlasting in this body that is decaying, that is still so full of junk. It's ugly, it's pitiful. But as we behold the glory of Christ by faith, the Savior of sinners, we are transformed day by day. Some days we take ales, some days feel like dubs, and I don't know that any of that's true. Who knows if it's an ale? Who knows if you actually win? Again, when we live by sight, we think we're crushing it. Uh, take heed lest you fall. Some days it feels like an absolute loss, but you've never been more dependent on the Lord in your whole life. The hard part about this life is we almost need suffering in order to remember how dependent we are on the Lord. Things go so well, and like I said at the beginning, his providence doesn't matter because things are going good for me. My schedule's working out. We, we, we're just so easy to live by sight and being tossed to and fro. And so week after week, we show up here to behold the glory of Christ by faith so that we can fight against that together. Not because that's going to save us, but because we're his but because we can be each other's shield, we can be each, the best thing about each other. We can be the lifter of each other's head. But living by sight, we are so concerned with us. What's going on in my life? What's up with my circumstances? What so-and-so didn't say to me? What so-and-so didn't do for me? And we're just distracted, disunified, and concerned with us. The Lord Jesus pulls our head out of the mud because he's in it with us. Like we heard from Romans 8, how, uh, yes, God has planned all things that happened in our life. 
from a high-level sovereignty perspective, yet by his spirit, he's up in the burden. He's up under the burden with us. So when we do struggle, like we will, in living by sight, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't leave us in that mess. Just one way that we show up here Sunday morning and God pulls us out of that. Your sins are forgiven. I love you. I'm for you. I will sustain you. I will keep you. I will protect you. And we try it again another week. So for this reason, I don't even know what this reference is to. Everything that we've said up to this point. We have even more reason to... Uh, even more reason than David to fight our spiritual enemies. Ephesians 6 says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's our war right now. We know God's wrath has been taken, and in Christ, all his enemies are, have been defeated, yet we're in a war, church. We are in a war, but let me give you some good news. God has given you the victory through Christ. God has given us the victory through Christ. Therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it is not in vain. We're struggling all week not to live by sight, and it feels like we failed. That labor is not in vain. The outcome of your efforts is not the reason that you put in the effort. The Lord says, this is good. Strive after this. Live by faith that I'm the savior of sinners, that I will never leave you. Make choices based upon that. Well, the outcomes of those don't seem to be rewarding me all that much. I don't have, it's not like my circumstances have just improved and coming home from work to serve my family got easier. But your work is not in vain. Your reward is great. In heaven. So not only is your work not in vain, but maybe this could encourage us all that God has made you alive with Christ. He's forgiven all of your sins. This is Colossians 2. By canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, that holy hill of sacrifice where God answers our cries for salvation. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You don't face anything this week that the Lord hadn't defeated. He is your armor. He is your armor for the battle. He's enough for forgiveness. He's enough for righteousness. He is the best thing about you. He will comfort you Maybe not by sight, maybe not by experience, but in spirit and in truth, he will comfort you. And maturity is living this way. Saint Psalm 3 is the prayer of David. It's the prayer of the church as we bear our crosses. And most importantly, as we consider in that first reflection, it is the prayer of the promised son of David, our Lord Jesus. And to land this plane, I want to make a reference to uh, the justice of God being our hope. So we pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what we pray. Not only what we all just admitted was good about living by faith this side of heaven, but that sin will be eradicated. 
There will be no more fear, no more tears. Uh, Living by sight won't be a problem in the next life. We will behold the glory of Christ by sight. What's our problem now won't be our problem there. There will be no problems. We will be with our Savior. We'll be together forever when the Lord comes back to make all things right. And as we head to this table, this is what we have. The, the bread from heaven, the body of Christ given to us, the blood shed for our forgiveness, and his resurrection promising us that we too will rise and we will behold him with our very eyes. So may God give us grace to behold Christ by faith as the Savior of sinners every day, every moment, but that we would not live by sight in this world. Let's pray.